This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, April 23rd, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Now that the Mueller report is out, at least mostly, what do we know that wasn't well reported beforehand? And how should Congress make use of the evidence provided? Julian Sanchez, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, has poured over the report. He offers his thoughts. It's actually surprising how much of the report had been uh, public in dribs and drabs. It may be that the... uh, primary significance of this is one, to get things all in one place, and two, to confirm things um, that had been reported maybe based on anonymous sources, but, um, uh, you know, weren't the sort of thing that that you could 100% uh, uh, you know, count, take to the bank uh, on the basis of that level of reporting. Um, you know, there are a fair, a fair number of new details on the obstruction and um, some new information about conversations that uh, the president had with uh, his associates and uh, a confirmation of orders to try and remove the special counsel or to get Jeff Sessions to de-recuse himself and uh, rein in that investigation. Um, On the uh, collusion or cooperation uh, with uh, Russia side, uh, to the extent that it makes sense to think of those as different pieces, um, which I'm not entirely certain it does. the substance of a lot of it is stuff that's been in the press for months, if not uh, years at this point. And uh, the the places where it looks as though there might potentially be something new are are redacted. Uh, so in a way, the um, what is what in a sense jumps out at me most from this is is the number of things we still don't know, um, things that either Mueller didn't follow up uh, as thoroughly as, as one might have thought or or that uh, they weren't able to make a determination on either way uh, or things that are discussed but in a, a redacted form. And here I'm thinking uh, specifically of sections that appear to pertain to Roger Stone's outreach to WikiLeaks uh, and which are redacted as uh, potentially harmful to an ongoing matter if disclosed. All right. So uh, there was a lot of reporting, as you noted, on this, and a whole lot of this was reported at uh, one point or another. How, how has has much of that been called into question with this report? No, I think uh, what this mostly does is validate the bulk of the reporting on things that were going on relevant to the investigation or leave them uh, in question. Um, this is part of the things that things that aren't in the report. Um you know, there was a fair num- uh, amount of reporting on the Mueller team being staffed up to look into uh, the financial history, um, you know, the ties between the Trump organization and either the Russian government or uh, Russian oligarchs with ties to the government stretching back even before the election. Um, there's not a ton, at least unredacted, uh, that concerns that. It doesn't mean that they weren't looking into it. It just means that uh, it doesn't seem to have found its way into this section of the report, at least not in uh, you know the, the quantity um, some of the reporting would have suggested. So some, the questions that uh, remain relate to ob- obstruction of justice and criminal conspiracy. Right, and so this is uh, you know one of the things that I think uh, is sort of problematic about our discussion in general is that we tend to see everything through the lens of criminal law. Um, when we, if you think of this from a sort of counterintelligence perspective, 
um, or a national security perspective, um, that doesn't necessarily line up neatly with things that uh, that are you know federal felonies. Um, if you think about this in terms of what would what kind of conduct, let's say, would make someone ineligible for a security clearance, what would make someone a security risk and therefore not. Uh, uh, not eligible to access secret or top secret information. Um, you know, there's a lot of things in that category that are not crimes. Um, and so this is a report that is for, for statutory reasons because of the sort of the mandate of a special counsel focused very much on decisions to prosecute or, uh, or decline to prosecute. Um, uh, which means, you know, instead of collusion. They're really talking about the, the crime of conspiracy to commit some other offense. Um, and so they don't find that, uh, or at least they don't find a case that they're uh, prepared to bring to court. Um, but from the perspective of sort of what, you know, do we have a picture here of a campaign that was uh, accepting and happy to, to have uh, and in a sense encouraging and looking to aid uh, foreign assistance, um, you know, that's, that's not a discrete crime, but I think the, the aggregate picture that comes out of this is, um, is that it does look like that. Um, and because of the focus on criminal conspiracy, there are details that would be very significant and interesting to know uh, with respect to sort of how aware the campaign was of uh, the foreign assistance effort on their behalf um, that aren't pursued as fully as one might like. Uh, to my mind, a, a pretty critical piece of information is whether when uh, George Papadopoulos, the former campaign advisor, was in London uh, and seems to have been approached by uh, effectively a kind of Russian cutout academic, um, notifying him that Russia had obtained thousands of emails related to Hillary Clinton. This was uh, damaging dirt that that would be uh, helpful to to Trump if exposed, uh, and this is all well before the DNC hack became public, um, though after it, it had occurred. Um, was the rest of the campaign informed about that? Uh, because does it, it doesn't show conspiracy unless they agreed to something, unless there was a quid pro quo. Um, you need an agreement for conspiracy, um, but it would sh put in a very different light all the subsequent actions of the campaign. If the campaign was informed. The, this this kind of offer or preview had been made, uh, then the subsequent sort of vehement denials that we could be confident Russia was behind this, that this was really a foreign hack and not an inside job or some 400-pound person in his basement, um, all of that looks very different if you think, um, well, the campaign had very good reason to know um, that, that those denials were not, were not true. Um, and that wouldn't necessarily make a difference with respect to whether there was conspiracy. Um, but with respect to whether this is uh, you know, uh, something that looks like a national security risk, whether it looks like you've got uh, a campaign and a president um, effectively working to assist an electoral interference campaign, it does, uh, I think, make a, a pretty significant difference. And that's a detail the report was never really able to pin down. It seems like um, no one quite recalled whether uh, Papadopoulos had passed this piece of information on. He was uh, working pretty vigorously to try and set up meetings with high-level Russian officials in the campaign. Um, but whether this detail about the sort of hacked emails was passed on, uh, no one seems to have a clear memory of. And there's a bunch of other places where 
Um, you know, the, the report says they're not really sure why Manafort, Paul Manafort, the former campaign chair, was sharing internal polling data with Konstantin uh, Kilimnik, which who was assessed to have ties to Russian intelligence, um, doesn't rise to the level of a demonstrable conspiracy, but they're not they're not entirely sure what was going on there. And they um, they did find that Manafort seemed uh, determined to lie to them a whole lot about uh, about those interactions. Um, so you and you know, there's the outstanding questions uh, with respect to how far Roger Stone's outreach to WikiLeaks went. Um, again, probably doesn't get you to the point of a criminal conspiracy. This is all sort of well after the the hacking had occurred and when you've got a, an institution that's in the course of publishing things, um, but does go to sort of state of mind willingness to uh, accept this kind of help and to encourage it and to shield from consequences. Um, and that's something that is uh, significantly redacted in the report itself. So to the extent that uh, Robert Mueller wasn't able to establish things that uh, he might like to have uh, established with respect to specific crimes, and and uh, yet it's inappropriate in some ways to view uh, a lot of the behaviors here as uh, necessarily uh, criminal, uh, even, you know, to look look at them through that lens. Right. What what should the House do? The House, there are many members of the House, Democrats specifically, who would like to see this president impeached. Mm -hmm. Is this is is this report helpful or harmful to those efforts? I mean, I think certainly in particular in in, in the obstruction section, there's, uh, you know, certainly I think enough here that that, um, you know, at least opening hearings uh with an eye to potential impeachment uh, would not, I think, be difficult to justify. Um, you know, part of this is, again, there are sort of sound First Amendment reasons why you might want to make it difficult for criminal law to reach a lot of the conduct described here. Um, so, you know, if, if I publicly say, well, I, I you know, I think people are, are getting too upset about Russia. I don't think we know that they were responsible. Uh, and, if, and I'm lying if I secretly think, well, I bet they were responsible, but they're helping, you know, the, the candidate I like. Um, there are good First Amendment reasons that you would not want to make it easy to make that a crime, um, you know, to kind of comment publicly on uh, something in a way that um, maybe doesn't reflect reflect the extent of my my true suspicions. Um, so, uh, you know, it might be that even if that ends up sort of helping in some way a foreign campaign, we don't want to make that a criminalizable act. Um, and yet it might be the kind of thing we're willing to say we don't find acceptable conduct from uh, someone in, in a position of authority. Um, the obstruction pieces, I think, uh, are, are sort of the easiest to run with on this uh, on this score, partly because they, they do refer to conduct in office and therefore we're getting closer to the idea of of high crimes, meaning not, you know, especially bad crimes, but um, misconduct of a particular type that is germane to having uh, having public power, um, crimes of abuse of authority. Um, and that may be uh, conduct that, again, precisely because it's abuse of authority, uh, authority that someone's legitimately exercising, it's difficult to make uh, a crime, um, right? We have granted the president authority to make decisions about, uh, you know, what, uh, what the justice department will do or what officials, uh, will, uh, will staff it. Um, but that makes it, I think, uh, so for that very reason. And as, as 
the report itself suggests, uh, you know, they are not coming to a firm legal conclusion on obstruction, despite having presented a fairly detailed case for it in significant part because they know they can't indict a sitting president anyway. Um, you know, that's a pretty clear referral to Congress. The The second half of the Mueller report is um, a not very disguised uh, referral to Congress saying, here's the evidence. And I expect now Congress to make uh, a determination on that. Uh, whether there's political will um, to to go ahead with that is is another story. Um, a lot of Democratic leadership seems skittish about the idea of pushing forward and are happier to talk about health care uh, approaching the next presidential election. Um, but it seems unambiguous that Mueller's intent in that second half is um, here's some evidence for conduct that I know I can't prosecute directly. Uh, and I expect Congress to make a determination about not whether it uh, rises to the level of violating federal felony statutes, but whether it rises to the level of the kind of high crimes and misdemeanors that uh, would make it appropriate to remove this person from office. Julian Sanchez is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. Podcast. 